The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. In the eight years I've been interviewing near-death experiencers, I've encountered many stories of childhood abuse, many more than I ever expected to encounter. Our guest today, Crystal McVeigh, is another NDEer who sadly experienced molestation. For her, it was from ages 3 to 12, and as a result, she found her life going downhill during her teenage years, including drugs and alcohol and promiscuity and divorce and abortion as a result. Her life improved with a happy second marriage, but by then she was into testing God. During her pregnancy, the tests were, God, I'll know you're real if I'm pregnant with twins and proved to be twins. Uh, God, I'll know you're real if uh, if these twins are a boy and a girl, which they were. God, I'll know know you're real if their eye colors are blue and green, et cetera, et cetera. And when all those conditions proved true, she still had some doubts. In 2009, by then a school teacher, wife, and mother of four, Crystal McVeigh died. During the nine minutes that the medical team worked to bring her back, Crystal says, that she experienced God, who ultimately sent her back with a message of hope and love for herself and for all the world. Crystal went on to tell her story in the New York Times bestseller, Waking Up in Heaven, A True Story of Brokenness, Heaven, and Life Again. And since then, she has uh, written a follow-up book titled Chasing Heaven. To tell her story, Crystal has appeared on programs such as Good Morning America, The Anderson Cooper Show, Dr. Oz, and The 700 Club. Crystal continues to share her story of how her experience of dying taught her how to live. Crystal, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. And and uh, even uh, we've even sorting through all the technical problems that uh, we invariably have. Uh, Crystal, many NDEers believe we choose the life we are about to live just before we're born. But why do you suppose would anyone want to burden themselves with going through childhood abuse? Oh, that's a really good question. I have not been asked that before. I've often thought about that. And what I remember is in the moment that I died, I remember standing in what I call heaven, this beautiful, immense light. And immediately I recognized where I was. I knew that I was home. And so what you just said really radiates with me in the fact that this wasn't a place that I was being introduced to. It was a place that I was being returned to. And the two angels that uh, greeted me the moment that I was there, I wasn't meeting them. I recognized them. In fact, I was very excited to talk to them. Uh, They were excited that I could finally hear them and see them and remember them. And so... I can only answer that to say that although I was the same entity in spirit that I was in the hospital, in my human form, in our spirit form, we are in the most perfect version of what God source created us to be. And so I don't think that it's possible to understand things in my human form that I did understand in my spirit form. That that really makes good sense. Um, so we're confident, probably, when we're on that side of the veil, that we can handle anything. 
that gets thrown at us, and that maybe we even take on burdens, huge burdens, in order to uh, to learn and to uh, and to then help others. Um, during your NDE, God shows you a picture of yourself as a happy child, and I guess that that was around the age of three until your parents divorced and your mom remarried, which is I guess when the abuse began. And you say in your book, you believed yourself to be filthy. You even mm-hmm. got baptized at, at seven or eight years of age, four different times. You went to be baptized in hopes the abuse could be ended by giving yourself to God. You said you loved Jesus, but feared God. And now I think you, you see them as one and the same, pretty much. Is that true? I think, yes, that's a good way to put it. Um, I was raised in Bible Belt of Oklahoma, so I was raised believing in the Christian faith. And so Jesus was always somebody that I felt was kind, that was loving. God, I feared, um, very much so feared. When they would talk in church about a loving father, it was very hard for me. Not that my birth father was not loving, but he was very absent. My stepfather was not the one who sexually abused me, but that was the age when he entered our life that it all began. And he dealt with drugs and alcohol and there was abuse in the home. And so I had a very skewed view of father. And what I knew from what I could pick up in my little eight-year-old mind was that God was somebody to be feared and that he was wrathful and punishing. And because of everything that had happened to me and especially as a child, you tend to, or I tended to internalize what had happened as I was bad. I was dirty. It was my fault. Um, And so then I remember at eight years old, sitting in that Baptist church and hearing them say, you know, if you get, if I gave my life to Jesus and was bad. So for an eight year old who desperately wants to escape um, this abuse, I ran down and I think I cannonballed into the water that night. And if you knew me as a child, that really was on par for my personality. (laughs) And, but then when the abuse continued, when the life continued, I thought, well, I did something wrong. And within months I was tiptoeing into that baptismal pool. And before I turned 12, I was baptized uh, four times in three denominations and I always joke when I'm speaking at a church and say, I guess we'll never know which denomination did it, (laughs) but really I was already his. I just didn't know it. I think baptism by NDE is the most powerful one of all. Yeah. I think that's the one that stuck. Uh, Yeah. One thought crossed my mind um, about this. Um, You have been pretty much, you've been a chaplain to uh, strip club workers and the homeless uh, the, the, the very desperate people who, uh, if you hadn't shared some hopeless situations yourself, you might not have been so empathetic with, but now having the combination of the experience of abuse and the certainty that God loves you through your NDE, uh, you'd be a a wonderful person to meet. I, I would think if you were I think so. A a strip club worker or pregnant strip club worker or someone sitting under a bridge, you know, as we have uh, everywhere in the country these days. And those those were really, you know, before I died, I mean, I was never not a good person, but I was a very selfish person. Um, 
I became a single mom at 21. You know, I entered my 20s with a divorce and two babies on my hip. Um, every mistake or learning experience, you know, that you could have had, I did. I, I tended to learn things the hard way. And so I was a single mom for many years before I met my now husband, which will celebrate 17 years of marriage this year, 18 oh. years together. But you know, I think that that's where my heart lies um, with single moms is because I remember, um, I remember how it feels. Um, I was never homeless, but after my experience, I was close to being homeless several times, but after my experience, when I returned, all I wanted to do was one, I wanted to give everything away. My husband on several occasions had to say, I need my clothes. You can't give all my clothes away or <laughs> I, I need our house, you know, and, um, or you can't give our house away. Uh, so things like that. And that's when he will tell you, he said, I always believed you, but it was that moment. We were actually, uh, in the middle of a lawsuit with somebody who owed him an ex- substantial amount of money. And, I did not care if we spent the entire amount that we were going to get as long as we won, right? Like I wanted to win. And so after I died and came back and I said, we're just going to pay it. We're going to pay it and wish her well, wish them well. And my husband said, that's the moment I knew. Like that's when I knew that you were telling the truth. So it did. It changed me in in a deep, profound way. Well, tell us now, if you will, about your near-death experience. It was uh, You were in the hospital for pancreatitis? Mm-hmm. I was. And so what had happened was I went into labor with my twins at 29 weeks, 28 weeks, and they were born at 29 weeks. Mm-hmm. We were in the hospital for several, several months. And so you had mentioned all those prayers I had prayed. I'll know you're real if I get pregnant. We did. I'll know you're real <laughs> if it's twins. It was, I'll know you're real if it's a boy and a girl. And it was. And then in the very end, I said, well, because I was actually getting afraid, right? And I said, I'll know you're real if one has blue eyes, one has green. My husband is a beautiful black man with deep brown eyes. And so if you know anything of genetics, usually that's the dominant. And so I I knew that I was putting something forth that maybe God, that was going to prove he wasn't real. Because what it came down to is if he was real, I had some major questions like, what kind of God are you to allow what happened, not only to me, but, you know, to other people. And basically that was real. like, why, why would you allow that? And so when the twins were born, uh, they weren't sure that they were going to survive. And that was the point that I think I really did believe in God because this anger arose in me. And I thought he is real and he is the punishing wrathful God that I learned about. And he's going to take one of my children as punishment, right? Oh, yikes. And so I remember holding them. They were about a week and a half old. We couldn't hold them. And they opened their eyes and one had blue eyes and one had green. And that right there should have been enough, but it wasn't. I was very, very angry. I think everything just started piling up. So we get home after about four months and I was having trouble breathing. And so about six months later, I went in for a routine procedure. I was going to be home that evening and everything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, My pancreas was accidentally nicked, which set off pancreatitis, which put me in the hospital on a pain medication pump. 
that unbeknownst to us was set up, miscalculated just a hair, enough that my body couldn't filter the medication that I was getting. And so on day three, um, I called my mom that morning and I was alone in the hospital. My husband had to take care of our babies. And I said, I'm, I'm dying. And she said, you are so dramatic. And I said, I'm telling you right now, I'm dying. And she said, well, let me put my makeup on. I'm coming. And I said, no, come now. So if you know my mom, she doesn't go anywhere without her makeup. But she came up to the hospital. She sat with me. And I can remember opening my eyes at one point and seeing her put her makeup on in the bathroom. And then I closed them. And then I opened them again. And some time had passed. And she was sitting at my feet with her back towards me. And all of a sudden, I had this peace wash over me. I've always been terrified of death, right? Because we don't remember doing it. Mm-hmm. And I've been terrified, but this peace washed over me. And I knew that my heart, I knew, I just knew, I knew that it was, I was done. I knew that I was dying and I had a little bit of air left. That's the only way I know how to describe it. And with that, I pushed out the words, I love you. And I don't remember her turning. I don't remember her calling for help. I don't remember the 10 minutes that they performed CPR. Because the minute that I said, I love you, I would, I woke up, I literally closed my eyes, blinked and opened. And I was standing in the most beautiful light. I wish there was better human words. I wish I knew a gazillion human words that could explain it. And instantly, so many things happened at once. I knew who I was. I was still the same crystal who had just died in that hospital room, but I also knew that I was the same crystal that had existed for all of eternity. And so when I say that, I got a lot of pushback when I came back and I would say that, and several people within uh, my faith would say, that's not biblical and you can't say that. Um, Eternity is no beginning, no end. And what I knew is that I had existed from the moment And the Bible says like that he created me in my mother's womb. He knew me before. He says, I knew you before I created you in the womb, before I became a human. That was the part of me that I was rejoined with. Um, I had no questions. I knew where I was. I had the two angels. I called them angels standing in front of me. What I really would call them are my guides. I knew that they had been with me every single step of this journey, this school lesson that I had come to experience. They were excited that I could see them finally, that I I knew that they were there. Uh, I knew that they weren't like they weren't my grandparents, you know, or somebody I had known in this life. Like they were contractually with me from the moment I stepped into this life. Um, And we communicated beautifully, but with no words. It was all done with emotion and thought. And it was the most profound way to communicate. And then I became aware of another presence and I turned to my right and I was just flooded with this profusion of love, visible, tangible love. And immediately I dropped to my knees. I put my hands up, which I was never raised in like in any of the churches I went to, we didn't worship that way. 
but immediately I put my hands up and then it was almost as if I was in so much awe and had so much reverence for this source of all things that I just fell to my face and I cried and I cried out my question. You know, remember I said, I have, I have a question if this God's real and I cried out and I said, why didn't I do more for you? Because in that moment, I didn't have those questions that I had as the human. I was able to, I was being rejoined with the source that had created me. And I was overwhelmed. Um, Tangible love that, I mean, we can tell each other we love each other and we can feel love. But I was in the presence of love itself. And what I came to realize is when we feel love, when we act upon love as humans, that is the source of all running through us. So when you feel love for somebody, you're feeling this, this source of all things. And I don't know how long I laid there. Um, I remember at one point looking down, I call it a tunnel, but it was bright and there was no ends. Um, and I remember looking down and I noticed at the very end of this tunnel, it got very bright. And I knew that that was the entrance into my forever, right? Like I knew that that there was an entrance and God said in the entire time I'm talk, we're talking, but I wasn't allowed to remember everything. Um, God said, once we get there, you can't come back. And he reminded me of several things all at once. Um, he showed me a vision of my four children, just a vision. It wasn't actually them. And he showed me several things. Uh, one that he was with them always that God never, and I, I use he, but that God never leaves us, that he had a plan for them and their journey here, just as he does for all of us. And that it, he uses all things for good. Um, and that their plan for their life was perfect, but his, that perfection on that side, using the word perfection. And then here it doesn't match. It doesn't mean the same thing because it didn't mean that they weren't going to experience, um, trauma or heartache or sorrow, but it meant that it, it all wove together in this beautiful tapestry that whether we're 33 or 99, you know, it forms, it forms a life. And, and then he showed me that I wasn't really leaving them, that I was going to be a part of everything until I was rejoined with them and that we would be rejoined together. And then he reminded me of a time I sat in church and the pastor said that we're, you know, you're supposed to love God above everybody. And just in the back of my head, I said, I would never love you more than my children. I could never love something more. And so I remember that because when he gave me the choice, I chose to stay with him. I chose not to return to them. And uh, my 14-year-old at the time was not happy with that answer. Like, how could you not want to come back to us? I said, you just have to, you'll just have to experience it one day. Um, And so when I made the choice to go with him, the vision of my children disappeared and we continued towards, uh, you know, I refer to it as the gates of heaven. It was really just the entrance into the next realm. And then I saw her, this beautiful little girl. And she wasn't a, just a vision. She was a, a human little girl dancing in front of me. She had a little basket and she would dip her basket into the light and she would dump it out. 
and the light would cascade like water. It was just the most beautiful thing. And she would giggle. And I, I loved her. Like I have never loved anything in my life. And I knew that she, I had ownership of her and she belonged to me and I couldn't get to her fast enough. And as I was trying to get to her, my spirit started, I don't know how else to describe it, but swelling with love for this child and pride. And I remember at one point, right before I got to her and could scoop her up, I said, I'm going to explode. I'm going to cease to exist because I could not contain the amount of love I had. And in that instant, it would be as if um, maybe I was wearing like some kind of glasses, right? And like God removed them from me. Like that's how it felt. And when I look back down at her, I recognized her as me. And God said, I've been trying to tell you this your whole life. But he knew that simply telling me that wasn't going to work for me. He had to show me. And what he showed me was that he allowed me to see myself through his eyes. And I say that if his love was represented by every grain of sand on this planet, he gave me one grain to experience and my spirit could not contain it. Like it is that undescribable. And I know that he showed me that as a child, because that was where my doubt and my shame and my, my, really my faith journey with him began. I always felt abandoned and I always felt alone. And what he showed me in that moment was that he did not cause what happened, but that he never left me and that he never stopped loving me and that he loved me more than I could ever imagine. And it just changed. It changed me from the inside out. Do you suppose in that feeling of that you felt like you were going to explode with love, is there a time when we ultimately merge with love itself, that we become love, we become one with God, that we lose the Lee or the crystal that we are and, and, and just become part of God's perfection? You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But what I will say is that, you know, I did know that I was still me. I was just the most perfect version of myself. And if I had had other adventures or journeys here or over there, because remember I said that it was a place I recognized. I wasn't able to bring that back with me. But I do remember when I was laying in front of him saying, I, I could stay with you for eternity. I, I didn't want to leave um, God's presence, not for one second. So I, I really don't know the answer to that, but I know that I just wanted to be with God. I wonder why we choose to leave in the, in the first place when a place of such perfection. I've <laughs> always wondered, and especially after this experience, like you said earlier, why would, why would we choose? Um, I don't have all the answers. I wasn't able to remember everything when I came back, but here's what I do know. Standing in that realm with God and with the angels and in this place I call heaven. And I didn't even get to go through the entrance. Right. So I can't even imagine if it was this good in the waiting room, <laughs> I can't even imagine what it's going to be like, you know, when we go through, but there was no negativity. There was no sorrow, no pain, not one grain of negativity. And I don't know about you, but um, I learn more lessons when I have choices and I make those choices. And then uh, I told you earlier, I usually learned from making the wrong choices or the hard choices. It's kind of how I learned the most. 
And so I, I've thought, you know, maybe to look at life more as a school and that, you know, maybe you learn, maybe we have to come here in order to learn and to ascend in our spirits. I don't, I don't know. Well, you uh, started out your career as a school teacher, and I could see you picking up the larger schooling program by going out to the people that, uh, that need to know that God loves them and, and yeah. approaching them with that truth. Uh, before, before we leave that tunnel, however, most people describe uh, in their near-death experience going through perhaps a dark tunnel, coming into the light, and then being outside the gates of, of heaven itself. Now, you're still in the tunnel as, as you describe it. Describe the tunnel for us. What, what did it look like? So for me, there was absolutely no darkness. Um, it was a beautiful profusion of light. But then I came, I knew instantly that everything was just a spark of the creator. The tunnel was a, was a piece of him. And there was a spark of God that created me and my spirit and the angels. And so everything was so connected and we were connected and then we all connected back, you know, to the source. And so for me, the tunnel was vast, but cozy, right? Like I'm going to hit, it's like oxymorons, right? So it was vast and cozy and it had sides, but they never ended. Like it just went on. There was no beginning or no. I mean, I say that I saw the entrance into the next phase, but I don't even call that an ending. So it was like, there was no beginning, no end. And after I had experienced uh, the little girl and that experience was, you know, it was just the angels and God and myself. And we continued towards the um, entrance and the entire time talking. And I've never been happy. I've never experienced joy and happiness like I was there. And I didn't see any of my family, you know, that had passed on. I didn't see anybody that I'd known. But then I heard my mom. I heard my mom crying. And I said, oh, I said, she doesn't know. Like, she doesn't know I'm okay. She was terror. I could feel the terror in her. And I said, can I, can I just go tell her I'm okay? And God said, the choice is up to you. So there's the choice two times, right? Because the other thing that I had always feared about God was that he was just like a puppet master, right? And so that when we got to heaven, we just worshiped him for eternity. That sounded so boring. And then he just pulls our strings and we do everything, you know, that he says. But for the second time, he gave me a choice. And so I turned around to go find where her voice was coming from. And when I did, he said, tell them what you can remember. And remember, I had, I mean, I think I had the keys to the universe in that moment. There was no questions. And I remember thinking that's silly. And I said, well, I'll remember everything and I'll be right back. And I looked down because her voice seemed to be coming from under where I was. And I looked down and when I did, I just remember the floor of this realm of what I was standing in. It was like I was standing on a glass river of the most beautiful diamonds that God's goldenness like shine. It was the most gorgeous thing I'd ever experienced. Um, 
you know, we're taught here, you have solid and liquid. And then there, it was just like, you can dip the light and, you know, I mean, and, and we have five senses here, but there it was almost like we had a thousand, there was a thousand different ways to experience. Um, and I just remember thinking how beautiful the, even the, even the floor was so gorgeous. And the minute I saw the floor, um, I was back in the hospital room and I was trying to remember how to talk Um, to then to the doctors and nurses, it probably appeared that I didn't understand what was going on, but on the contrary, I knew exactly what was going on. I couldn't speak. And so that is something I remember when I go to speak with the dying, that just because they cannot speak doesn't mean that they can't, you know, hear or understand what's going on. And so it took me a moment. I think it was the only time in my entire life that I've ever been at a loss for words. And then I started to say, you know, stop. Uh, I want to go back. I, I'm in the most beautiful light. I'm with God. And, you know, funny thing, they don't stop CPR if you ask them to. You know, if you start going back out, they bring you back. So about the third time they brought me back, I, I knew I knew that I wasn't I wasn't going to go back. And, and then I was just mad. Were you in a lot of pain when you came back? Not in the very moment that I came back, but I do remember a, the doctor. I don't know how long I had been back, but I'm assuming pretty quickly. And um, I told you that my body, essentially, I went into respiratory arrest and that stopped my heart. And it was from a drug overdose. Uh, the Dilaudid that was in the pain pump was sending too much to my body and I couldn't process it. So I basically died of a drug overdose. Uh, and so he gave me a shot of Narcan which I later found out uh, erases the effects of, of narcotics. They give it to a lot of um, people oh, that have drug overdoses. Over, overdoses, yes. Yes. And I will tell you that that was the first moment I felt pain. It was the most excruciating moment of pain. And I had just had children. I mean, it was the most excruciating thing. Um, and then I had cracked ribs and pancreatitis. And then I just had this shot. So, yes, I was in so much pain. And then they put me in critical care for several days. And, but I still tried to tell, you know, I would tell, I remember a cleaning lady came into my room and, and I said, do you, do you believe we go somewhere after this? And she said, oh yeah. And I said, I saw it, you know, and it didn't occur to me how crazy I must've sounded or looked to people, but I soon found out, I soon found out that when you start talking about stuff like this, that never know it's really interesting when i was a chaplain at the hospital so few doctors believed in um the the nde stories we were hearing and so many of the cleaning people did and they were they were just so much wiser in uh, in the heart you know Mm -hmm. perhaps they didn't go to medical school but their hearts were so much more mature than those of the doctors and nurses who just couldn't conceive of anything happening after we died. Well, and my, my mom would tell you that when I did start telling them, you know, please stop. I'm with God. I want to go back. I'm okay. She said that the doctor that was actually in charge of um, the people that were in there, she said that he got really choked up. And so I would hope that they would see enough. And I don't know. It's 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 amazing. Well, the ones that that do uh, see it see it, and I think there are certainly more of them today than there were when I started chaplaincy. Because uh, uh, just because there's been so much more coverage, I guess is the best word yeah. to say, 
uh, of it, you know, from, from people like you talking about it. When I was a child, it took me decades to talk about my, my childhood near-death experience. And now people can come out of it and be talking about it. And I think that's because God is maybe giving that message. Tell mm-hmm. people, tell people, because God's still speaking to us and he's speaking Very to so. us through people like you. And he continues, he continues to speak. But what I, what I realized was that he doesn't sound the way that I want him to sound or that I think he's going to sound. Um, I think one of the hardest things that I dealt with after coming back was the feeling of, I was with you and I could talk to you and I could hear you and you talked back and now I can't. My husband is an army vet who went into treatment three years ago for PTSD. And, you know, what we didn't know at the time was that we have 22 service members a day that take their lives still today. And we didn't know that. And my husband, you know, by all accounts could have been one of those 22. And I remember the night that he left the house and I just remember laying in my closet and crying and telling God before I didn't know if you were real, but I, I'm more mad at you today because now I know you're real and I I can't see you and I don't feel you. I know you're real and you won't talk to me. You won't make this better. Right. And I didn't hear from him. I felt like I didn't hear from him. This, uh, this Saturday will be three years to that day. And we are building our, our brand new house. We're moving into it. And we went to look at our new neighborhood and the road is named Preserve. And that is how God speaks to me, that three years later, here we are on the stronger foundation that now my husband has a ministry within the community of veterans, you know, but how could he, how could he help them had he not understood what they're going through, right? Mm. And definition of preserve, to keep from decay, to keep from being destroyed. So that's how I look at God still speaking, um, and also God was speaking to him through you when he began mm-hmm. to recognize when you wanted to give everything away yeah. that, that, uh, that God had had or that heaven had had an impact on you that he couldn't right. deny. That gives him the confidence to go out and talk to some of these yeah. 22 that were, you know, it's, it's horrible. Um, it it when, is. And he always believed. That's what I didn't understand was I'd say, well, where's your proof? How do you know before I met God? How could you believe? And we went to church every Sunday and I'd come home and go, do you believe this stuff? And he'd say, I really do. I mean, he just never questioned. But I think you said in an interview, and I, I, I hope I remember this correctly, that uh, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Right, exactly. I I know I, that maybe it may not have been your invention, but I love that no, expression. I'd never heard I it think before. That, I think Joyce Myers said that, and you know, it made so much sense to me. And so, what we ended up finding was that church became different for us. Um, church became sitting with homeless under a bridge and listening, not preaching, listening, doing life together. Church for me began going into the darkest realms, sitting with women that have come out of sex trafficking, that were actively working in the adult entertainment industry. 
uh, I had a longing to go into the darkest places uh, because that's where I felt like I had lived for so long, even though not in those situations, but I had lived in the dark for so long. Um, and I, I can remember saying during some of the hardest parts, the hardest things I went through in my life, I didn't need anybody holding a sign against me. I needed somebody to hold me. And so that's, that's what we try to do. We don't have all the answers. We can't fix it. Doesn't make people um, not have that job or not still be homeless, but just the, the knowledge that you're not alone. I think somewhere you said that you don't go into a, a strip club and hand somebody a Bible. You go no. in and tell them how much God loves them. That's what well, everyone actually, needs to hear. Actually, you'll be surprised to hear this. That's not even something that we would normal. I would normally even say. What I would say is that we would go in with gifts. We would not take up their time because that's their place of business, and we don't want to disrupt. And we there was only a couple of us that would go in, and we would leave gifts, and we would say, "I love you," because you know if you were like me, if somebody came in and told me God loves you, I'd roll my eyes at them. You know, before when I was living in in that darkness, I would have rolled my eyes. What I needed was a human, you know, to love me and to walk with me. But then it's through that that you build relationship. And oh my gosh, I now, after years in this ministry, I have two of the most precious God babies because I met their mother and have watched, I've just watched this beautiful woman and what she has gone through and where she has risen to. And I get to, I get to play with these babies and call them my God children. But that wasn't because we brandished Bibles or, you know, said anything derogatory. It was because I said, Hey, I love you. Anybody doing a baby shower for you? Do you need anything? Here's my number. If you ever want to go get a coffee and that's how it starts. And that's why the world needs so many more of you, because to give someone the proof that you love them takes time. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I love you and then walk away and never see them again. And it's, uh, but, but what persuades them and what ultimately brings them to the understanding that it's God's love that you're channeling through you to them is uh, spending time. And, but one person can't, cover the territory. It takes many, many people who are channeling God's love. Right. And I have friends, I have family that are agnostic, some that might claim like atheists. And that doesn't stop the relationship that I have. Right. I mean, I have this experience in writing this book has led me the greatest thing that I got out of it was the people that I have met over this last 12 years and the, the extra time with my family, you know, my kids, but I have just got to meet the, the greatest people on this journey. And I learn from them. Tell us if you would, perhaps an example of, of uh, meeting someone who uh, was really in desperate straits, maybe working in the sex trade or, or strip clubs or, you know, just how um, they respond. I I know everyone's different, but 
Maybe you could give a couple of examples. Um, I would use the example that I gave about uh, my friend that was the single mom uh, of two children already. And a lot of the times this is a, and I'm sorry, they're doing yard work outside. I hope it's not loud, but a lot of times that kind of work is very financially lucrative. And so once you start making that kind of money, it's very, very hard uh, to walk away from. And what we find is a lot of our girls or a lot, a lot, not all, uh, would become dependent on drugs or alcohol. And then it becomes a cycle. You work to get money for your addiction and then you have your addiction so you can make it through what you have to do for a job. Um, and so I would say just the women that I've met that have taught me, taught me things. Because here's the thing, not every woman that I have met in there was like that. I have met incredible, strong, independent women raising children, never touch drugs or alcohol. I mean, you just, you can't pigeonhole, you know, people. Some of the smartest humans I've ever met were under a bridge that were so filthy. I would have never stopped to talk to them before, but the best Easter I ever had in my life was sitting in that dirt and listening to this man teach me. And Oh, I've met so many people that are in the LGBTQ community that have just become so ingrained in my spirit, in my heart. Um, any marginalized group of people that's taught that they can't have the experience that I had or that they're not worthy. I think my heart really goes out to, to them. Um, I mean, you name, you name it. I've met somebody that has taught me something. Uh, in Chasing Heaven, you tell a story of how you called out to God one night and asked him to break my heart for what breaks yours. Yes, and that's a very dangerous prayer because when your heart is broken for another human being, you simply can't walk away, right? And so I am so sorry. I hope that is not super loud for you outside there, right outside my door. <laughs> it's okay. But when you, I said that I'll, I'll never pray that prayer again, because it was the most dangerous prayer and your eyes are opened in a way that they never were before. Um, there's always been people that were homeless and I never, I never gave money on the street. I never stopped to say, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And I went to church three times a week, most weeks. And I never gave somebody a drink. And I never said, is there anything I can do? Even if it's not monetary. So that changed a lot. And so now my kids are just kind of used to us doing that. I think you said it became a prayer that wrecked your life in the most beautiful of ways. I in the most beautiful of ways. Yes, because it led me into places that I never would have gone before. And in doing so, it introduced me to some of the most beautiful humans that I would have never known. What's your understanding of the nature of evil? Do you believe there's an evil one, a, a Satan? Do you believe that it's a positive, negative force in the world, or is it just the absence of good? I don't know. 12 years ago, and even 10 years ago, when I write, wrote my book, my, my answer might have been a little different. I was still, not that I'm not evangelical now, 
but I have had experiences that were not the same experience that I would have had with God that I probably, and in my book, I had said, you know, I don't have any other answer to say that if it was the opposite of love and good, then what we're taught is the opposite of God is Satan. But uh, so much has changed. I had a conversation with Alan Combs. Do you, do you know who he was? Yes. He was a political commentator. And the day my book came out, he had me on his show and it was such a hard day for me. And, and right before the show started, he said, are you one of those Christians that's going to tell me I'm going to hell? And I started crying and I said, why would somebody tell you that? <laughs> and he said, well, cause I'm agnostic. And I said, well, I'm Methodist. What denomination is agnostic? And so he laughed and he said, well, agnostic means I'm not sure that there's a God. And I said, oh, there, there isn't. We had a beautiful conversation, but Alan and I developed a friendship and it just made me laugh because, you know, he defended me and we had two separate belief systems. But I remember thinking, why would you think that you don't get to experience this God or this love? That made me sad because I'm not special. According to what we're taught, I should have never seen God. Well, there is a church for agnostics. Uh, it's called Unitarianism. <laughs> and well, I, there you go. I, I say that because uh, many of the people that also attend my congregation are members of that church as okay. well. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, of course it didn't start out that way. It was a branch of the, uh, I want to say, um, Trinitarian congregational church who came out of the Puritans. So they fell a long way, but they didn't fall at all because God loves everyone that comes to his door. Yeah. Apparently, and, uh, and you know, it, it doesn't matter if you're even, you could be an atheist. As long as you, yeah. he looks at your heart rather than mm-hmm. the way you're thinking about things. Yes. And if your heart is, if, if you're capable of love and can recognize his love, I mean, that's all yeah. he's asking is, is recognition. recognition. Tell yeah. me, uh, I'm going to ask you another theological question while I have you here. What do you, what's your uh, thoughts on reincarnation? I don't know. Um, I look at, like I said, I... I look at this as a school and as a journey. I, as a human say, I don't want to come back. I do not want to do this again. But then when you're standing in that most spirit, your, your perfect self and your spiritual form, everything made perfect sense. And remember that I knew that I had existed before this. So I was somewhere, my, my spirit, my my mind, I mean, my consciousness, it existed before I was a human. And so who's to say, but you know, that's the frustrating part about becoming human is I knew so much when I was in that realm. And now I can't remember. He let me remember just a few things. My friend, Mary Neal, I don't know if you've ever talked with her, read her book. She wrote uh, to heaven and back. Yes. Yes. Uh, she's become one of my dearest, dearest friends. And she's, I been, said, to, she's been to many of our IONS conferences. Yes. Uh, that's actually where I met her. We we met at an IONS conference in Austin. Oh. And we have been very good friends ever since. Uh, one day I was talking to her. She really was there for me when we were going through the, the stuff with my husband. And 
And I said, I don't understand any of this. And when I was on the other side, I had all the answers and I could remember everything. And when I was coming back, I knew exactly why I was coming back. And I'm so angry because he didn't let me remember. And she said, well, he let me remember that my child was going to die. And she said, you know, basically just saying, be careful, you know, that maybe in him not allowing me to remember everything was a good thing. Not that she looks at it as a bad or a good thing, but it just brought it back into perspective that I don't know. I don't know what lies ahead. I don't know if, if I'll go tomorrow, which we laugh in my house because once you've died, that's kind of like, that's all I talk about. And so if you come to my house, you might see sticky notes that my kids have written their names on and put on items, you know, and we joke like that everything I own has been, you know, spoken for because you don't know if it's going to be today or tomorrow. And the one thing that I do tell my kids, especially is it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. There was no pain. There was no fear. My grandfather passed away five years ago and I was holding his hand towards the end. And, and he said, I'm scared. And he was my biggest, biggest fan. And I said, he said, tell me what it's going to be like again. And so at 92 years old, you know, I told him and I said, Papa, it, it was like diving into the most beautiful pool of water. Like it doesn't hurt and it's so beautiful. And, but if I go in 99 years or tomorrow to me, I know I'm going to look at God and say, I told you I'd be right back. You know, because there was no time it, I don't know. I think about it. I think about it at least four or five times a day still. Tell us the story about the sheriff that you uh, were with who was dying. Okay. So I'm like 23, I think. And I had gone to get my license renewed and they said, you can't get your license. You have a suspended license. And I thought, oh my Lord, well, how does that happen? I don't know. Well, I had to run an errand. I had to go by the sheriff's department. We lived in a little tiny town. My ex-husband was behind on child support and I was going to go tell them where he was. So I walked into the sheriff's office and I explained why I was there. And, and he said, well, I don't have that name on my list. I have this name. And I said, well, that's me. I said, oh, is maybe is his child support like under my name? And he said, hold on, I'll be right back. And he comes back in and he was well over six feet tall. It's big cowboy of a guy, cowboy hat. He said, Crystal, he said, honey, you're, you have the right to remain silent. And I thought he was joking for a second. And I thought, <laughs> what in the world's going on? And I said, is this because my license is suspended? And he said, your license is suspended? I said, I don't know. I just got real quiet. I, said, I don't know. And I started crying and he, they arrested me and handcuffed me and he fingerprinted me. And he said, who do you want to call? You know, and I said, uh, not calling my mom. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so we called the bails bondsman and I took out my checkbook to write a check. And the bail bondsman said, oh, I only take cash. I'm a single mom. And I started to cry. And Kenneth said, I'll vouch for her. She's going to stay here with me and I will take her before the judge later today. And I said, my kid's daycare closes at five. And so he said, you'll be there. So I ended up sitting in that he didn't put me in a jail cell. I ended up sitting with him handcuffed. And at one point he got a sandwich and he fed me and we ate and he walked me over to the court. And here I was in school to be a teacher. 
And I lived in a little tiny town where everybody knew everybody. And he could see that I was trying to hide my handcuffs. And I remember he looked at me and he said, I'm going to take those off and don't you run. And I went to say, I won't run. And he said, because I'm big, but I'm fast. I said, okay. So anyway, he put me in my car after it was all over. He said, get your license taken care of. He knew full well. He said, go get those babies, get your license taken care of. I don't ever want to see you again. I was like, I don't ever want to see you again either. So 20 years past, my book has come out and I get a call um, that there is a man that is dying of brain cancer and that his wife has requested us to come by. And we didn't know them. We'd never met them. And so I'm sitting next to him and the whole time I just kept thinking, you look so familiar. And I kept telling him, I said, Kenneth, you look so familiar. And then it dawned on me. I said, did you, were you ever a police officer? And he said, I was the sheriff. And I started crying. I said, you arrested me when I was 23 years old. (laughs) And he said, oh, not me. And I said, Kenneth. And I told him the story and I cried. And I said, I didn't have anybody. I said, you held my hand through the hardest day of my, one of the hardest days of my life. And he squeezed my hand. He couldn't open his eyes. He squeezed mine. And he said, and now you're holding mine. And I got to see him several more times. And he passed away about two weeks later. And I've stayed in contact with his wife. But that profoundly impacted me. You know, like that is one of my favorite stories to tell. And no, he wasn't healed. And and he was healed, you know, spiritually. But just the honor to get to hold this man's hand, you know, as he had done for me so many years ago. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Crystal, we are sadly out of time for today, but I do want to thank you so much for sharing uh, so much of your life story and, uh, and, and especially the last one about the sheriff. I, I found that. Yeah. That's my favorite. Amazing. I'm so glad you brought it up. And <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. Thank you for having me. Well, we we could talk to you as well. And uh, But um, anyway, the podcast says mm, more or less <laughs> an hour. <laughs> yeah. we'll, put up, we'll put up with that. Thanks to you, Crystal McVeigh, for sharing her story um, of her NDE, the healing that it brought her in her otherwise troubled uh, life. And and her life of teaching God's love and healing to others. Uh, Crystal, if folks out there would like to uh, reach you or find out more about you, what's the best way to do that? Well, I am a a mom and a little school teacher, and I'm not really good with technology. So I did open a Facebook. And so it's Crystal L. McVeigh, M-C-V-E-A. And that's where you can find me. Um, And you can message me there. And that's about as tech, the most technology I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a crystalmcveigh.com. Is that? Uh... I am not. I don't believe that that is any longer. I don't oh. believe that it is working, but. I tried it. Something came up. I didn't, I didn't oh, explore well, it, but. Uh, well, that's... Maybe I'll be surprised. Well, you can try crystalmcveigh.com. I'm not quite sure, but you can try it. It's it's hard for those things to go away if <laughs> if, uh, if once they're established. But anyway, uh, that's a possibility too. And uh, okay. tell, tell the the titles of your two books again. So our my first book is Waking Up in Heaven, and our follow up book was Chasing Heaven: What Dying Taught Me About Living. Wonderful, thank you so much. Thank you. 
If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. Listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.